0: Well, I've really enjoyed myself. I've had had been having a lot of fun uh, been fun hanging out with, with the folks and having some good conversations and some good times here and being deeply moved by those meaningful skits that you have that are just so profoundly impacting. Uh, the whole thing has been, I, you know, I wonder if, uh, I was just thinking to myself that if I had had a ministry like this when I was first going to college, maybe I wouldn't have had to uh, spend a year going through misery uh, as an atheist, losing my faith. It um, wasn't any such group around. So you guys are very blessed. I hope you realize that. You're really blessed to belong to uh, a ministry like this. And the way to go to the leadership of this ministry, uh, Harry Potter, you are doing a good job, the rest of you guys. uh, It's it's a, a fantastic thing. So we've been just sort of following the spirit here and talking about the story and talking about what it is to have faith and to live in that story and how you don't have to have everything settled uh, to be fully invested in the story, and it's also okay to struggle and have doubts uh, in the midst of that story, and the nature of faith is a covenantal thing, not an intellectual thing, just been talking a lot about that, and then last night talked about what it means to live this out, and and the essence of the story that we're a part of is that we're we're, uh, folks who are, are stationed behind enemy lines, we're in the middle of a war zone, there's a battle that's going on, and... And uh, we are called to live not like we're on vacation, but as though we are soldiers uh, invested in the battle. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul says, uh, don't be overly occupied with civilian affairs, but always be seeking to please your commanding officer. Think about that. A soldier who's stationed in a different country has to always know that you're not a citizen of that country, but you're uh, a soldier and you've got a job to do. And so don't get too involved in the civilian affairs. Don't get so caught up that you forget that you've always got a job to do. And so also we, as we're here, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're called to live a different kind of life. Always remembering that our our job is to please our commanding officer. And um, that's what it is to be a faithful bride. To have a singular devotion, a singular allegiance uh, to our heavenly groom and to keep ourselves separate from a lot of the nonsense that goes on uh, in the story of the world, and in, in our case, the story of America. Don't buy into the lies that were fed perpetually, continually, relentlessly about what life is, was, is really all about, and the attitudes that are appropriate, and the behaviors that are appropriate. Rather, have a singular commitment and faith uh, to our Lord, and to be first fruits, showing an unripened world what it is to be a ripened banana. Uh, what bananas are for, uh, what, what, what humanity is. We're, we're to be a window into the future. In us, in the way that we relate to each other and the way we relate to the world, people ought to see the reality of God's love and the reality of His truth and the direction to which God is leading the world. And it's the beauty of that distinctness that attracts others who are open to it into the kingdom. And that's how the kingdom grows. At the, at the core of this whole thing, And this is what I want to end today with. At the center of this is that we are called to... It really is is, is profoundly, profoundly simple. And yet, I would suggest quite absent in the church in the West today. But at the center of it, this isn't an ethical system that we're talking about. This isn't a, a system of behaviors. Like, here's the nine things you need to do and ten things you need to avoid. And now try hard to do the do's and don't do the don'ts. This isn't an ethical system. What it is is a new kind of life. The kingdom isn't, isn't a, a set of rules and behaviors and attitudes. As you live it out, there are certainly things that we look for to be present, but at its, at its core, it's a new kind of life. It's not the normal kind of life people have, which is biological life or social life or whatever. The kingdom is based on receiving the life of God into ourselves. The whole paradigm is God pours himself into us, and we overflow towards ourselves and others. Well, we overflow back to him, and then to ourselves and others. He loves us, and we overflow with love towards others. At the, at the core, it's about receiving and giving love. But you can't give it if you don't receive it. So at the center of the kingdom isn't about what we're supposed to do. It, it's At the center of it is, is really who we're supposed to dwell with. As we learn how to get all of our life from Christ. When I say get all of our life, what I mean is our sense of being fully alive. Our sense of self-esteem, our worth, our value, the sense of purpose, the sense of security. All the things that are central to being a human being. We need all those things. I need to feel like my life has meaning and purpose and I'm significant and I matter and I'm loved and I'm secure. I'm going to be okay. I need that. So do you. Everyone does. The all-important question of life is where are you going to go to get that? And what normal worldlings do is you go to you go, you, you, we have tricks that we play to make ourselves feel secure. We surround ourselves with big houses and nice cars and that make, big bank accounts. That makes us feel secure. Or we make ourselves look sexy and that makes us feel like our life's worthwhile. Or we get some attention, we get some fame, or we accomplish something. Or we can throw football good or maybe you can preach good or, or, or whatever. But, but it, we're, we're getting life. Okay. Do you notice me? Do you like me? Am I doing okay? How am I achieving? Oh, my life feels worthwhile. As long as I'm as long as I'm, you know, uh, competent and achieving and sexy and successful or whatever your game is. And we all have a lot of different games. But as long as you're doing that, well, then you throw a little bit, feel like your life's worthwhile and significant and secure. But the minute you start losing those things, well, now life sucks. And so you have to try harder to get them. That's the normal way of getting life in the world. That's why the pagans chase after food, clothing, and shelter, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. But he says, don't you do that. No, 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 you, you know the king. And so you just have to seek one thing, and that's the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And to put it at the center of our life, this is the center of everything here. It's a question we have to answer moment by moment. You can't answer it once and for all. But it really is, will I go to God as revealed in Jesus Christ, as expressed on the cross especially, Well, I go to what God has said about himself and me on the cross for my source of worth and self-esteem and value and security. Do I feel secure as a human being because I know that Jesus died for me? Do I feel worthwhile as an individual because I know Jesus died for me? God loves me that much. Uh, Does my life have purpose and meaning and significance? Not because I think you guys like me or, or anyone likes me, but because I know God likes me. And to the extent that I have got my my self-esteem and my worth and my value and my security rooted in him and in him alone. And so my faith is in him and in him alone. And my allegiance is to him and to him alone. To that degree, I'm a free human being. To the degree that I'm not getting it from him, I have to get it from you. Or my wife or my achievements or something. Because I have to have that and so do you. So the question is, is, are you running on dry or are you running full? I, if you're trying to get life from how cute you are or who likes you, who doesn't like you, uh, what you achieve or how smart you are or whatever, you're going to be running on empty. And you've got to keep on going back to the well to get more and more life, more and more worth, more and more significance. It's very fatiguing. And in the end, it will always let you down. The whole process of life is a, is a, is a process of losing things, letting go of things. You die. You're in a process of decay already, even though you're young. Everything that you find value in is going to eventually leave you. And, and the, the wisdom of life is learning how to let it go before it gets ripped from you. Because you weren't supposed to get that life from that anyways. Enjoy your youth while you're young, but it's going to leave you. Enjoy your wonderful looks while you have them, but don't get life from them because they're going to leave you. If you got lucky and you got a lot of money, fine. You know, ask God what to do with it and enjoy what he lets you enjoy. But don't cling to it because it's going to leave you. Everything's going to leave you. And that's good news if if you never were grabbing it in the first place. It's terrible news if that's your source of life. The whole process of the kingdom is getting and overflowing, getting and overflowing. Looking to his beauty, and then he pours his beauty into us, and we become beautiful. Looking at his joy over us, and then we become joyful. Looking at his peace towards us, and then we become peaceful. And we manifest that different kind of life. That life that's free from idolatry. We manifest that, and those who are hungry notice it, and they go, I want some of that. How are you so free? you how, 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 You're free. When you no longer need to be trying to suck life off of opinion polls and achievements, you're free. You no longer need to be. You don't even cling to life itself. That's what it means to die to yourself. You don't. You don't need. Uh, your security isn't rooted in being secure. Until until we can do that, we'll never be able to love our enemies. To threaten us. Yeah. Our, if our security, if I know that I live forever, and that's my security, and I, you because know, I know that God loves me with the kind of love expressed on Calvary, I don't even need to cling to myself. My own life. Now you're free. And the irony is that the less you need to live, the more fully you'll live. I've never said that before. That came out just right. The less you need to live, the more fully you'll live. That's good. <laughs> the less you need to live. That's it's true. The less, you need, the less you need stuff, the more you'll enjoy stuff. And then when it goes, it goes. The, the less you need uh, to get life. Now, we all like to be liked, and, and we, you know, you need human companionship. But man, if you need that, to, for people to think that you're funny or clever or smart or sexy or whatever, you're in bondage. You're in bondage. And uh, it'll be it'll leave you empty. The whole thing is, to be the first fruits, We. it's not a matter of us saying, okay, on your mark, and said, go, let's first fruit it out. Let's be a bunch of ripe bananas. We can't do that. We. What we can do is position ourselves individually and as a community to be receiving, to receiving His love and overflowing with His love. Um the, the, core what we manif- the core of what we receive and the core of what we manifest is God's love. Now, everyone thinks that that, that, that is elementary. Like, oh, we already got that. We got that in first grade. Everyone thinks that like, you know, the deeper stuff is move on to eschatology. Let's move into some kind of doctrine debate or something. When I submit to you that it is elementary, but it's also the most profound aspect of the kingdom, and it's the most absent aspect of the kingdom. Uh, the church as a whole isn't walking in the love of Jesus Christ. If we were, if we were, then we would be attracting the kind of people Jesus attracted. Wherever he went, he had the hookers hanging out with him, and the tax collectors, the worst, of the, the most judged people gravitated towards him. They stayed away from the Pharisees, those judgers. Who wants to be judged? But something about Jesus—he had a kind of life that was attractional, and they wanted to hang out with him. So the way you know. He's asked the question, who's attracted to us? Do the worst of sinners see us more like the Pharisees or more like Jesus? I think that this love is profoundly absent. And if this love is absent, it's it's, it's a sign that we're not getting life from Christ. The sinner is not there. In some ways, I feel like the church to a certain degree, just trying to speak honestly here, we're a little bit like that deluded husband I talked about the other night. The husband who who convinces himself that he's a loving husband. Oh, I love my wife so much. Goes inside, kind of checks his his love meter and feels this deep love. Oh, I just love my, my wife so much. But he's never around, doesn't support her, doesn't help out with the house, doesn't help out with the kids, goes out drinking with his buddies all the time, is a negligent husband. He's deluded. If he wants to know whether he's a good husband or not, he shouldn't ask himself. He should ask his wife and those who are closest to him. What do you see? So also... It seems to me that, that the church does a lot of this where we say, Oh, we are so loving. We are loving. Uh, it, but the world doesn't know what love is, and that's why they don't think we're loving. But see, the ones to ask are not ourselves. Uh, we, we, we can have a jaded opinion of ourselves. We, we, we need to ask the world, do you, do you see love in us? And all the studies show that they don't. There's a book out there called Unchristian. Have some of you read that, Unchristian? It's a hard book to read because it really is simply a study of the perception that non-Christians have of Christians. And you could list a hundred things that come to mind, that people have come to mind when they think about Christian, and self-sacrificial love isn't wouldn't be on it. It wouldn't be number one or number ten. It's really interesting. People have a real high view of Jesus on the whole. He's like number two or three. He's, he's, uh, among pagans, he's still up there. But among Christians, whatever we're communicating uh it's it's not love now what is love people ask that question a lot you know love we use it all the time for a bunch of things and all sorts of songs i love you i want to make love to you uh loving in an elevator loving up while it's going down all oh, you know, love what is love what is true love here's how the bible defines love true love brings us together today the bible defines love not by giving us an abstract definition but by pointing us to a person the person is jesus christ You put up the first slide, 1 John 3.16. Here's how we know what love is. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. That sums it all up. Love is, the kind of love that we're talking about here anyways, the love, the agape love that defines God eternally and is to be the primary attribute of the first fruits, the kind of love that we need to receive is the love that was expressed on Calvary. Here's how you know what love is. It looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. We ought to live the same way. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5 when he says, live in love as Christ loved us and gave His life for us. That sums up everything right there. Get the love and give the love. Get the love and receive the love and overflow with that love. And it always looks like Calvary, which at its essence is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. If I'm loving you, then I am demonstrably ascribing worth to you. You are worth Something, and, and the way I do it is by sacrificing for you. Like, God shows us what we're worth to Him by the price He pays for us. You can always tell what something is worth to somebody by what they're willing to pay for it. I'll give you a, you know, $100,000 for that house. That's what it's worth to me. Uh, you know, some people will, my wife used to do this, she'd see a piece of junk, but because it was a blah, blah, blah antique, all of a sudden she says, oh, we ought to, you know, it's a deal. It's $300, and I'm thinking, that's worth $3, because it's a piece of junk. That's not junk, it's character. And, and so it's in the eye of the beholder. What is it worth to you? And you know what? Something's worth by what you're willing to pay for it. We are apparently are worth everything because Jesus Christ died for us. That's God Almighty becoming a human being, dying for us. So he says, here's what you're worth to me. No questions asked unconditionally. Our job is to now repeat that to all people at all times. Here's what you are worth. And we do it by how we serve, by how we sacrifice. The the way the wife knows that the husband really loves is by what he's willing to sacrifice for her and vice versa. Otherwise, it's just words. That's what love is. Here's what we know what love is. It looks like Jesus Christ. Living like this, getting love like this and living like this is at the center of everything. Everything depends on this. This is our central command. I want to run run through this here. It's our central command. Uh, Jesus says, you shall love. When he's asked, what's the greatest command? He gives two here. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on this. Everything is woven around this. Get this down, and you get everything else down. If you don't get this down, it doesn't matter what else you got down. You haven't got it. There's 613 specific laws in the Old Testament. He's talking to Jews here. And he's saying, if you get these two down, love God with all your heart, everything you got, and love others as yourself. There's there's threefoldness there. Ascribe unsurpassable worth to God, to others, and yourself. Then uh, you'll fulfill all the law. On the other hand, you can do the other other 612, uh, but it, it amounts to nothing if you haven't done this one. Everything hangs on this. In Galatians 5, Paul says, the whole law is summed up in love. The whole law is summed up. In a single command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen, Keep up with me here, man. Here we are. 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen. Paul says, listen to this. Let everything you do, let all that you do be done in love. Love it looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for people who didn't deserve it. That's what love is. Let everything you do be done in love. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. That means we're never to do anything if it's incompatible with ascribing unsurpassable worth to another at cost to ourselves. Everything we do is to be motivated by a heart that wants to ascribe worth to others at cost to yourself. If you can't do it in love, then don't do it. That's what it's saying. That's why if you're ever in an argument and, and looking smart becomes more important than loving the person you're arguing with or being right becomes more important than loving the person that you're arguing with, then do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Because you can win the argument, but you've lost it if you're not doing it in love. Every single thing that we do is to be motivated by love. And love always looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Paul says in Ephesians 5, I've quoted this earlier, live in love. Be imitators of God. Mimiti, I talked about that yesterday. Mimic God. And the way we mimic God is by living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. There it is again. Notice, you live in this. If you live in this, that means you never stop doing this. Never is it a right moment not to love. No ifs or ands or buts. The criteria for whether you should love or not, and love always looks like Calvary, whether you should serve, whether you should stay humble, whether you should come under somebody, whether you should ascribe worth to them, the criteria is not whether they deserve it or not. The criteria is not whether they like you or don't like you. The criteria is not whether they're nice to you or not nice to you. The criteria is not that they're making you feel secure or they're threatening you. The criteria for whether you should love or not is this. Are you alive? Are you alive? So if you're wondering, huh, should I love or not? Check your pulse. If it's there, yeah, I guess so. Do you have a breath? If, if you do, it's the right time to love. Ask yourself, is there any brain waves going on? Any brain activity at all? And if there is, which apparently is because you just asked the question, then it's the right time to love. It's the right time to imitate Jesus. Our call to live in love is not a call to respond to people in a certain way. It's a call to be a certain way towards people, regardless of how they are. Never is this to be turned off. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 4, Above all, everyone say above all. Above all. Say it louder. Above all. above all, clothe yourself with love. That means this is to be put above everything else. Sometimes folks will say to me, especially if they come from a kind of religious atmosphere, they'll say, yes, love is important, we need love, but we need to balance love with holiness. We need to balance love with correct doctrine. You can only balance something if you're putting on an equal here. We need to have a balancing. Love, but also justice. Love, but also holiness. Love, but also correct doctrine. As though they're competing but here's the thing. Paul says, Peter says, above all those things put love. Because the reality is this if you have holiness without love, it's not holiness. If you have doctrine without love, it's not true doctrine. Another way of saying it is, is this here's the most important doctrine in the world love. Never stop. No way fans or buts. Most important doctrine. It's important to believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation and the inspiration of the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Yes, important. But the most important is love. Because if you have all those right beliefs and are not loving, it's altogether worthless. I let everything you do, including believing right doctrine, be done in love. The essence of holiness is love. The essence of, of a right doctrine is love. And love always looks like Jesus dying on the cross for the very people who are crucifying him. It's at the center of, of what we're called to do. The center of the, the first fruits. As it amazes me, it amazes me that if you look at church history, you'll find a lot of people being put to death and tortured for a lot of various reasons. All of them stupid. Because you should never put someone to death. But they get put to death to not believing the right view of the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Pope or whatever. But never, we don't have any history of anyone getting their hands slapped, slapped, let alone being burned at the stake because they lacked love. And love is the most important thing. I would think the ultimate heresy, it ought to be the ultimate heresy, Worse than denying the divinity of Jesus. The worst heresy should be you thought you had the right not to love somebody. Because everything hangs on that. Everything hangs on that. It shows you that something has gone seriously wrong here. This is the center of everything. This is our distinctive mark as kingdom people. Our distinctive mark. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not abide, whoever does not love abides in death. So we sometimes find people who are like asking the question, "Am I saved? Am I am I in? You know, am I? You know, how do you know that you're growing in the Lord?" And there's certain things you can point to in character development, and they're all good. But the most distinctive mark is this: Do you have a greater capacity to love your enemies today than you did yesterday or last year? If so, well, at least to that degree, you're growing. If not, you need to seriously look and ask. Uh, whether you're you're really making progress in the spiritual life. Because the ultimate criteria, the ultimate way that you know you've passed from death to life is that that life is present in you. You went from the death way of living, which is getting life from idols, to to the kingdom way of living, which is getting life from the king. And the way that you know that is you begin to show the life of the king. And the life of the king is manifested on Calvary. When he, when he died for you and every other person gave his life for you, that's the kind of life That's the DNA that's being poured in us. That's the spirit that's being poured in us. And that's a character that will be manifest in us as we're learning to let go of the old and grab onto the new. It always looks like Jesus Christ. This is our main witness to the world. As we put on display what it looks like to be first fruits, the main thing it looks like is Calvary. The cross. Christ-like love. By this, Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how they're going to know that that, that you're for real. In John 17, my favorite prayer in the Bible, Jesus says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, it's as we learn how to replicate the love of the Trinity among us that the world sees that it's real. The credibility of God hangs upon the, what the first fruits do. He, 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 he leverages his credibility on us. The world's supposed to know that it's real by how we love one another, by our unity. When, when our way of relating, unity amidst difference, becomes, begins to reflect the unity of God himself... Well, that is what proves to the world, according to Jesus here, uh, proves to the world that uh, that he is for real. It's, it's this is the, this is the hat that God has hung his reputation on. What are we known for? It's, it's, here's why the book on Christian and all the studies done by Barna is uh, on this topic is concerning to me, deeply concerning to me, because the reputation we're supposed to have is. The reputation of Jesus. These are people who are willing to humbly serve and sacrifice themselves for anybody. These are people who are ridiculous in the way that they love people. They're ridiculous in the way that they don't judge people. They're ridiculous in the way that, that they, they, they are aware of the beams in their own eye, but they don't go looking for specks in other people's eyes. They, they just will, will wash the feet of the people who they know are going to be, betray them. They don't try to have authority or, or rule anybody. They just serve. They just carry the cross for people. These, these Christians are outlandish in their love. Uh, uh, how do they do that? And, and see, that's the question that only the reality of Jesus can answer. But that, that is by God's own design that, that, to be our witness for the world. To leave that reputation. These ridiculous, foolish Christians who are just always out there willing to help you move when you need to move. And, and they're there for a soul to cry on, even though they don't agree with your lifestyle, but they don't judge you. No, they're just there to help you when you're down and out and they're willing to spend time with you. And, and, and they're they're just silly like that. They, they, they'll bleed for you. And that reason is because Jesus bled for them. That's the reputation we're supposed to have. And so when all the opinion polls show that the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think about Christians is is intolerance or judgment or or self-righteousness, it's very concerning to say the least. This is the all or nothing of the kingdom. This is it. This is the Christianity 101, but it's also Christianity PhD. and We can't get too much of this because we don't have it down yet. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, and, and we need to hear this. See, the trouble is we read this at weddings a lot, and so people are used to this, and they think that this is poetry. Paul is not talking poetry here. Paul is talking doctrine here. This is one of the most radical statements, if not the most radical statement in the Bible. But we've heard it too much, so we get used to it. So we get conditioned to just think it's poetry. Uh, let, let, try to hear it like you heard it for the first time. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, glossolalia, in Greek. But do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, and, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Zippo nada. Think about this. I, 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 Paul, Paul he, he, he's for speaking in tongues he just told the Corinthians that it's a wonderful gift but if, if you're speaking in tongues doesn't promote love and isn't motivated by love and love always looks like Jesus Christ then it's, it, it's noise it's just religious noise Now think about how impressed you'd be if I could understand all mysteries. If I had all knowledge, all mysteries, all knowledge. You ask me a question about the Trinity and I can explain it to you and it's so clear. Explain about the incarnation and I understand those mysteries. I can explain it to you. And I've got all knowledge. Ask me any question about any Bible verse. I'll, I'll answer you. I'll give you the historical background. I'll do exegesis in the original languages just like that. You'd be impressed. Oh, wow, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? You could be a scholar, you could be publishing all these books. But Paul says if you don't have if you're not doing that for the purpose of love, with a motivation for love, it's absolutely worthless. And think what a superstar, a person who could move mountains, would be. They'd, they'd be on the cover of Christianity today. I could say to that mountain. Be moved mountain over there, be moved. Over there. It goes. Man! What faith! That's incredible, supernatural. I'd, I'd, I'd be on the cover of time. Maybe even. Miracle man of the year. But Paul says it'd be altogether worthless. No matter what you can do, give away your, your, all your possessions. Wonderful. Get, get a Nobel Peace Prize. But if, if your motivation isn't to ascribe worth to others at cost to yourself, then it's altogether worthless. This is the all or nothing of the Christian life. Everything hangs on this. This is the criteria. To receive that love, that unconditional perfect love and the beauty of God. To spend time basking it, drinking it. Let go of all idols, all other false ways of getting life. And then love yourself like that and love others like that. That sums up everything. It ought to be the goal of every day. This is what it is to seek first the kingdom of God. Final thing I'll say is, is this. And this is the kingdom at its most radical and its most beautiful and unfortunately most controversial. But that includes not just loving one another, as important as that is, it includes loving our enemies. Not just our friends, but even our enemies. And here's where a lot of American Christians get off. Because we have a very long tradition of feeling righteous about not loving our enemies. In the church and outside the church. So Jesus says this, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. What does love look like? Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross, he was doing it for enemies. Not just threatening enemies, but enemies who actually went through with it and killed him. And we're to imitate that. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Remember, live in love. We're not allowed to have an off button on this one. There's no exception clauses to this one. You live in this one. If you got a pulse, you got a heartbeat, heartbeat, you got brain waves, you got breath, well, then it applies to you. It applies to me. We're to live in this. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Here again we have that as God is to you, so you be to all others. And the way God is to you is Calvary. It looks like Calvary, ascribing worth to you a cost to himself. Realize that when Jesus used the word enemies, to a Jewish audience, they would have most would have instinctively, automatically thought of Romans. The enemies were the Romans. The Romans were the ones who were occupying their land unjustly. The Romans were the terrorists of the day. It says that in this case, the terrorists had already conquered them. Romans would sometimes terrorize their subjects just to make sure that they knew who was in control by rounding up people and crucifying them. If there was a rubble in a town, sometimes they'd crucify the whole town just to make a point. They were always flexing their biceps saying, you know, do you agree with us? They were nasty enemies, the threatening kind of enemies, the national enemies, the real mean ones. Not just grouchy neighbors or difficult roommates, though they're under the category of enemy too, that we're called to love. But these are the real enemies. And Jesus says to these oppressed Jews, most of whom despised the Romans, some who plotted the death of Romans, many who plotted the, to rebel against the Romans in God's name, they were the zealots and felt righteous about it. Jesus says, no, put away your swords. Uh, You've got to love them. And when they curse you, you bless them. And when they misuse you, uh, you've got to treat them well. Uh, you've got to love your enemies. Note that he says, do good to them. Now, this is interesting because beginning with St. Augustine, we've got a long tradition of subjectivizing love. What I mean by that is this. St. Augustine said, well, love love is primarily an inner disposition. It doesn't necessarily entail any sort of behavior. You can love the person that you're killing. You can love the person that you're torturing them. If if it's for the greater good, you, you, can, you, you can do that. But Jesus says, no, you've got to do good to them. To them. Do good to them. Not good to the whole by killing them, but doing good to them. Love your enemies. Then Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. In fact, you find that command three times in the Old Testament. Yeah, we have heard that. But Jesus, but I tell you, he says, do not resist and to sustain me. Do not resist an evil person. The, 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 the connotation there is not that you do nothing. The connotation there is that you don't respond to force with force. Don't, don't reciprocate. Okay, so it's not a matter of doing nothing, but it is a matter of, of saying don't sink to their level. If anyone strikes you on the right tree, cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's kind of a tradition. It's kind of what people do. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Jesus is aware that what he's saying here is outlandish. He's aware that this is really, this is really abnormal stuff. But he's saying, "Look, if you love those who love you, well, that's what everyone does. That you don't stand out as first fruits if you do that. There's nothing spectacular about that. I'm glad you love your mother, and glad you love your children, and glad you love your friends. But but everyone does that. Here's what here's how you'll really stand out as first fruits if you love the enemy, who is who is after you, who's threatening you, who's maybe ruining your reputation." Do not not even the tax collectors do that. So the idea here is, it's not that you you do nothing when there's evil. You do everything when there's evil. You just don't sink to the level of evil that's being done. Jesus says here, Love indiscriminately. Look at this. He says, Love like your Father loves, who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Love indiscriminately. The sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to shine on, and the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to fall on. That's how we're to love. And love always looks like Calvary. Love indiscriminately. That means to follow Jesus means we give up the right if we ever had it, which we didn't, but the world thinks it has it. You give up the right to pick and choose who you do good to, who you love, who you bless, who you pray for, who you, pr- who, 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 who you serve. We give up that right. That's what it is to be faithful to our heavenly husband, is to surrender that right and now imitate Jesus on the cross. It's a radical, radical teaching. And notice this. He says, do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So that you may be. Here, Jesus is making this kind of love the precondition for being considered a child of God. Since God loves like that, you'll know that you're a child of God when you love like that. We can't crank it out on our own for sure. But as we sit under that love and receive it, it is to overflow towards all people at all time. Another one, just uh Give two more passages here. Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Note the word anyone there. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. The word revenge there isn't necessarily a spite word. It can be a justice word. It's a quid pro quo word. Don't try to get even. Don't respond in a way that is just. They hit you, you hit them back. No, no, don't do that. They strike your cheek, you strike them back. Paul is saying what Jesus was saying. He says, don't operate that way. Rather, you leave all that to God. God is the only one who can settle accounts and settle scores. Leave it to God. Our job isn't to do that. Rather, it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So you leave all judgment to God. On the contrary, here's how we're to operate. Here's what it looks like to be a first fruit. If your enemy, remember who the enemies are for first century Jews. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If if he's thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. That's an idiomatic way of saying you bring shame to somebody. When you respond to somebody who's nasty to you, spreading rumors about you, being mean, when you respond not by reciprocating, but by loving them and serving them and, and uh, you know, not trying to protect yourself, uh, it, it highlights it, the wrongness of what they're doing. And it at least opens the door for conviction to come in. The way we respond to enemies is to, to be for the sake of the enemy. You maybe will help them see the meanness and the ugliness and the evil in their own heart, by not sinking to their level but rather doing what is right and acting Christ like loving them even though they persecute you i can give you example after example of 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 people's lives of how this got played out in the office when the boss was just at, at you and 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 spreading rumors about you and all that stuff you start spreading good rumors about them uh, and and start leaving gifts for them, and remember their birthday, and 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 just do the opposite of what your fallen nature wants to do. And it, it becomes it's really really hard to stay nasty towards somebody when they're being nice to you. And it might actually expose what's at the core of the whole thing. It's a kingdom way of operating. Never be overcome with evil. That's what happens when we are defined by evil, uh, as a person comes against us. But rather overcome evil with good. If you come up here and slug me. And I slugged you back, I just got defined by your slug. You, I gave you the right to define me. If you hate me and then I hate you back, well, I just empowered you to be Lord of my life. Because you're defining me, at least in terms of this relationship. But if rather I submit to my king, who died for me, and my whole goal is now to die for you or to bleed for you, to sacrifice and serve you. Uh, my whole goal is to, to tell you, and by the way that I think about you, speak about you and treat you, to tell you that you have unsurpassable worth. If that's my response, now I'm, now I'm defined by God rather than you. You don't get to define me. My abusive stepmother doesn't get to define me. The folks who spread lies about me don't get to define me. Only Jesus gets to define me. And I prove that by how I am Jesus-like in responding to them. You see how that works? And now I've introduced Jesus into the situation. I'm not overcome with evil, but now I can overcome evil with good because now I'm introducing God in the situation and He can begin to work his, his loving magic uh, to transform people's lives. This is the sign of the kingdom. When Jesus was before Pilate in John 18, Pilate says, Are you king of the Jews? Are you a rival? Are, are, you, are you a competitor? Is what he's saying. And Jesus says, this. Look, look at this. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now, or it can be, as you can clearly see, my kingdom is not, is from another place. The proof that Jesus gives that his kingdom is not of this world is that his followers don't fight. One of them tried, actually, pulled out a sword in the garden, and Jesus rebuked him. He says, that's not how we do warfare in this kingdom. No, no, in this kingdom, here's how we do warfare. He didn't say this explicitly. I'm paraphrasing here. But he takes up the guard's ear and heals him. The way you battle in the kingdom is by healing the ears of the enemies who come at you with swords. But you don't pick up a sword. So now now Jesus could say to him, Pilate, obviously if my kingdom was a, a, a national kingdom, if it was an earthly kingdom, well... My followers would be doing what followers of the kingdoms of the world always do. They always fight when it's in their interest to fight. That's what you do. That's how. That's the way the fallen world works. That's why human history is a cycle of, of mindless bloodshed. But my weirdo, my weirdo followers, they don't do that. And so you can see that my kingdom is from another place. I submit to you, it is still, it is still the, the most telltale sign that you are first fruit, that you're, that you're following a different king when we don't respond to hostility the way the world does. The most natural fallen thing in the world to do is to respond to hostility with hostility. But whether we're talking about grouchy neighbors or national terrorists, when we can manifest the kind of love that God had towards us, now we are putting on display a uniquely beautiful king and uniquely beautiful kingdom. You can't do this on your own power. It's impossible. You can't do this, in fact, unless you've already died. Only if I have died to protecting myself can I love somebody, genuinely love somebody who is threatening me. Otherwise, if, if a source of life for me is to hang on to my life, then I have to respond with aggression. But if I've already died, and I know that I live forever, well, then, then I can let that go. And now I can, even in threatening situations, I can, have, I can seek first the kingdom of God. I can seek to do God's will as it's revealed on Calvary. Does this make any sense? No, it does not. (laughs) Jesus knew it wouldn't. Paul knew it wouldn't. He says it's it's foolishness to the wisdom of this world. See, that's why it's beautiful. And the contrast is all important. As long as you're trying to fix the world, you think it's your job to fix the world, well, then you'll never be able to to follow this teaching through. Or your job to fix people, whatever. Our job is so easy and yet so so challenging, we can't do it on our own power. It's not to fix the world or fix people. It's simply to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And love always looks like Calvary. Jesus dying for us on the cross while we're yet enemies. In fact, dying for the very people who are crucifying him, praying with his last breath for their forgiveness. That is the bullseye of the kingdom life. That's the man from the future. To be a tribe from the future is to put on display that kind of love but we can't crank it out. And so I'm going to close with this prayer. Not that we try harder to love like that, but rather that we pant all the harder for God. This should drive us to our knees. When we see, we're, we're, we are on the whole, just to be honest, we're so far from this that we don't even see how desperately we need it. But when when the Holy Spirit reveals to us that this is the center of everything, loving like this 24-7, no exceptions, then we'll realize that we can't possibly do this on our own, which has to drive us to back to Christ, to say, God, we need you to fill us with your love, to free us from ourselves, and free us from all idols. And he does that just by opening our eyes more and more to his beauty to his beauty and to his grace, as we drink that in, and that becomes the source of our everything, source of our life, we significance and security. The more he is all of that, the more we can let go of everything else, and now the banana is being peeled. And now we are the fruit that he calls us to be. Live in love, as Christ loved us and gave us uh, his life for us. It's not an ethical command, so much as is, as a description of what it's like to get life from Jesus Christ. Let's go to him. Father, uh, Thank you, God, for being a God who showed us what we are worth by dying for us. Father, let that truth permeate every pore of our being. Let it get, open up our hearts to receive it deeply on the inside and in our minds that we are more loved than we can possibly even begin to imagine. And to experience that, God, and, and out of the fullness of life that comes from experiencing that, to let go of every other idol. To let go of the Stupid, fake ways that we try to get life. Trying to acquire things. God help us to let it go. But we can only do that when you freed us by filling us so that we are fully alive, no matter what regardless of what's taken from us. Show us your beauty, show us your love, empower us to let go, to peel the banana, to ripen us, to be the first fruits that you've called us to be, putting on display the magnificent, extravagant, transcendent beautiful, loving mercy and grace revealed on the cross and to do it to all people at all times, including ourselves no ifs, ands, or buts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me. Live in love.